This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. One unpredictable instability is the new normal. Roughly half of the world's currently stable countries are at some risk of instability over the next two years. It's disgraceful disgraceful that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. There is so much fake news in the U.S. right now, they don't need to create manipulated truths, they can just ride them. And that's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. I think it's a disgrace. Welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So we have an atypical and thrilling guest on the show today, and I feel very, very comfortable and relaxed right now on my birthday, just talking to one of my hometown pals. <laughs> we used to party just vaping and taking shrooms in an unfinished half-built house in New Hampshire in the 80s, playing Aerosmith. And that's right, he's General James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence under President Barack Obama. Okay, I'm terrified. I saw Full Metal Jacket and Private Benjamin. I know how talking to generals when you hardly know how to salute or stand in line can go down. But the truth is, I tore through General Clapper's new book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence, which is, I'm not kidding, one of the best chronicles of our troubled times, which puts the Russian cyber attacks in the context of Clapper's lifetime spent outsmarting Soviets and then Russians at Spycraft. So I'm going to try to stand up straight and not mention shrooms. And just for today, we're also going to put aside the Mar-a-Lago shadow cabinet running the VA and also how our president may be changing the landscape of the 2018 midterms. You know, we're also going to have to shelve the harrowing spectacle of sweaty, adulterous thief Rick Gates on the witness stand And that means we can't really talk about the amazing art lean court drawings of Gates and Paul Manafort. Art lean, A-R-T-L-I-E-N is the court artist. What a great name for a court artist. Like if Manafort collected art, he would have an art lean on his collection. See what I'm saying? I'm sure we'll visit all those stories before long on Trumpcast. But today we're going for the wide angle view with General James Clapper. I'll be back with him in just a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Joining me from Slate's D.C. studio is General James Clapper. He served as the fourth director of national intelligence and senior intelligence advisor to President Barack Obama from 2010 to 2017. He has a book out called Facts and Fear, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. And most importantly, he's a guest on today's show. General Clapper, thanks for joining us on Trumpcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. So I have never read a book I realize about spycraft that's not written by John le Carre. Um, so it's very, um, it, I really devoured Facts and Fears, um, your book about uh, a life in intelligence. I guess I want to start sort of where the book starts, which is your lifespan essentially spans the, the history of the Soviet threat and the history of a certain kind of intelligence gathering on the part of the U.S. and its allies. No, that's true. I uh, I actually grew up, uh, I guess, a fledgling uh, Cold War warrior. Um, my dad was uh, serving as a signal intelligence officer himself, uh, you know, collecting against the uh, the Warsaw Pact. So I got to know some of the soldiers that worked for my dad uh, because uh, age difference wasn't all that great. I was 18, 17 or 18 years old. and. Mm-hmm. And just living in that environment uh, of the Cold War and the huge American pre- military presence in Germany, and that, I think, at, a, at an early age enlightened me, if you will. Uh, the year after I graduated from high school, uh, uh, from Nuremberg American High School, I went to the University of Maryland at Munich. Hmm. And my roommate and I, uh, in, uh, incident I recount in the book, um, took the train to um, – through East Germany to Berlin. And it was quite eye-opening at a relatively young age to see up close and personal just what the Soviet threat meant, you know, the stark contrast between East Berlin and West Berlin. And uh, that really made uh, an indelible impression on me. So not to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine you could hardly foresee an America that was closely aligned with a Soviet-like dictator in the form of of Vladimir Putin, or at least our executive branch is looking increasingly like that way. Um, How did it register with you that we had this kind of president on our hands, or at least this kind of candidate on our hands? Actually, uh, this began before the election uh, as you know, from starting, I guess, in in, uh, in 2015, but particularly in the summer and fall of 2016, as we gained, we, the intelligence community, gained more and more insight and understanding about the magnitude of what the Russians were doing to interfere in our, in the election, and in fact, trying to influence it, the outcome of it, uh, in favor of one candidate and the disfavor of the other. Mm-hmm. And as I've said uh publicly that in my 50 years in intel 50 plus years in intelligence I've seen a lot of bad stuff but I don't think anything that disturbed me as much as watching what the Russians were doing uh, which uh, frankly was part of the motivation for uh, actually writing the book the the book is propulsive partly because you know that it's um you start to understand the context that's going into how things how things come out beginning in 2015. So you 
in 2015 at the Worldwide Threat Assessment Hearing um, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, you said unpredictable instability is the new normals, 2015. Um, half the world's countries, currently stable countries, are at the risk of some instability over the next two years, right, in 2015. When you were reading that statement, did you have a sense that America itself was at risk of becoming one of those politically unstable countries? Uh, I don't know that at the time I did, but regrettably, using the uh, the metrics and measures that the intelligence community uses to gauge instability in other countries, uh, to some extent, we uh, exhibit uh, some of that. Now, that wasn't, I don't think, on my mind in 2015, but uh, certainly since then, I think uh, uh, that that's a worrisome concern, certainly for me anyway. So you were, I think, around right around the time, maybe just months before, the um, Sony was was beset by this North Korea hack, and I know that episode was sort of formative for people learning about the state of play in in cyber warfare. What would you tell Trump today about dealing with with North Korea, about Kim Jong Un and and the DPRK? Not that he would listen. Well, but what would you yeah, say yeah, if you were going to – if you had a chance? Listen, well, one of the things that struck me when I went to North Korea in 2014 to secure the release of two of our citizens was North Koreans are stuck on their narrative and we are stuck on ours, which at the time was you must denuclearize before we'll talk to you, which was a non-starter I learned firsthand. Hmm. And the only – and given the relationship, the the only partner that could uh, change that narrative was us. So I thought actually it was a good idea for the president to meet with Kim Jong-un. I, I do think, though, regrettably, he squandered the leverage he had, the considerable leverage he had, just by virtue of agreeing to meet, which was a huge want of the North Koreans going back to Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think he extracted the, or used the leverage he had, and I thought gratuitously agreeing to give up the uh, so-called war games uh, was a big mistake. It was unnecessary in the, because the North Koreans understand exactly what that war game is all about that we do annually with our, our Republic of Korea allies, and it's, it's a defensive uh, exercise, and the North Koreans know that. So, I mean, what's it like for you— as an American citizen, you know, as military, as ex-intelligence, to sit and watch the displays with Kim Jong-un and then with Vladimir Putin of our president. I mean, I, I mean, what is it? Well, it's, you, it's amazing to do? me. It's amazing to me because it's incomprehensible that we berate our traditional historical closest allies uh, starting with Canada and, and Mexico, uh, our, mm-hmm. our two closest mm-hmm. allies f- geographically, not to mention the likes of the UK or France or Germany or others. And at the same time, we seem to heap praise on and pay great deference to despots, autocrats like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. And I just thought it was uh, incredible uh, to watch the new press conference uh, Helsinki and the president's, uh, uh, de- you know, deference to Vladimir Putin and his denials of meddling in our election, which is incredible given the just overwhelming evidence. We had very, very good high confidence and in- intelligence that what the Russians were doing. There's just no doubt about it. It wasn't 
It wasn't China. It wasn't the 400-pound guy in his bed in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It was the Russians. Mm -hmm. And all that evidence has been presented to him, and he's been it's been emphasized by his own appointees uh, who, who succeeded me and, uh, and you know others that served in the last administration. So uh, it's just uh, unthinkable to me. So in sort of tracking how abnormal um, the current administration is, maybe you can tell us when you were serving under Obama, um, what is it like presenting intelligence findings to a sane and stable president? Well, <laughs> as and, opposed to one who rejects them. Yeah, in, in President Obama's case, whatever else you you may think about him, one of the things he was staunch about and emphasized to me and, and others in the intelligence committee repeatedly that he always wanted the straight facts uh, as mm-hmm. as we saw them. There were occasions where some of his advisors perhaps weren't weren't so wild about that, but he always wanted the unvarnished truth from intelligence. So that's a very positive and constructive atmosphere uh, in which to work. And and so working for him uh, under that circumstance was, was superb. So uh, one of the things you did with Obama was um, help build the uh, philosophical, factual groundwork for the, for the Iran deal. Um, what were those days like for you when the U.S. was negotiating that deal? Well, we sort of had our head down uh, trying to provide as much uh, insight as we could into, you know, what the, what the Iranians were thinking and what their intentions were uh, throughout the negotiation. That was, that was kind of our role. I, I um, you know, I agreed with what we, with what we did. Uh, I thought uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was a good thing. You know, for me, it was a fairly simple proposition. Which would you rather have, a state-sponsored terrorism with a nuclear weapons capability or a state-sponsored terrorism without a nuclear weapons capability? It seems simple to me. (laughs) I go ahead and pick the latter uh, option. Uh, The agreement wasn't perfect, but uh, the Iranians uh, have abided by it, and they've allowed unprecedented monitoring and surveillance capabilities uh, in their country. And so to me— I always considered that this was just a start and this is a way to gain influence and leverage uh, with uh, the Iranians to get at some of the other nefarious behavior, which we certainly recognized as well. But we thought the most important thing was to take the most serious threat off the table, which was a, a developing nuclear weapons capability, which the JCPOA did. So we uh, now, Trump has axed the deal or backed out of it. And what is Trump missing about well, that deal? Well, I don't quite get the logic. What Trump has said is he wants a, quote, better deal. Mm-hmm. Presumably, the better deal means a comprehensive reform of all of Iran's nefarious behavior, not only their nuclear activity, but their nefarious regional activity, their support of the Houthis in Yemen, their support of Hezbollah, et cetera, et cetera. Yet we're going to do the, bring that about by exerting a whole lot less leverage than we had just to change one aspect of their bad behavior. So I don't get the logic of how uh, we're going to induce the Iranians to go for a comprehensive deal 
particularly when we're trying to only do it coercively. You don't think that bluster and tweets are going to work um, at work as, you know, he can Well, always, no, and, and yeah. they have imposed sanctions, which, which to a certain extent will uh, put more pressure on Iran. It also has the effect of playing to the hardliner narrative in Iran. There, there's a big upheaval going on in Iran. There's lots of uh, resentment about the uh, corruption of the regime and the poor economy and all that. But what what the hardliners will do is is use our withdrawal, our abrogation of the JCPOA as kind of a see we told you so sort of thing and uh, strengthen their argument for being more isolated and continuing the nefarious activities uh, in the region. Um, we just got the, the Department of Justice um, indictments of the, the GRU officers, the Russian military intelligence officers responsible for much of the, or as much as we know, as much as the public knows of the cyber attacks during the 2016 election. What did you make of that document? I mean, it's a justice document. It's Mueller's team, obviously. Is it stuff you already knew? I mean, it, as you know, it struck the, the, you know, those of us well, who don't know this field as incredibly comprehensive. I'll, I'll, Oh, yes, it was, and very specific, and I don't think, uh, you know, there's any doubt at all about uh, who, who did this. And I think that indictment gives you some insight into the fidelity of the information that uh, the intelligence community gathered, and uh, just one aspect of it that shows how d detailed and specific our insight into what the Russians did. It also served in my view, along with the earlier indictment on the uh, Internet Research Agency and its people, uh, it's to me, it served to validate the findings of the intelligence community assessment that, that we mm -hmm. produced mm -hmm. in, uh, in January of 2017. Uh, so I hope thinking Americans will, uh, will have read both those indictments as uh, insight into uh, the magnitude and, and the the sophistication of what the Russians did. Um, that uh, even before that, you had also talked about a particular cyber threat, the one known as spear phishing, um, which was used by the GRU um, agents um, in in 2016. You talked about steps that cyber experts and our institutions could take to protect themselves. What steps do you think our institutions need to take now? To protect themselves, and we also we haven't referred to the Iranian attacks that the the Department of Justice just addressed. Well, I'll tell you the the my experience is the the most important thing to do is to educate people. I will tell you my own my own staff in the intelligence community. Uh, we had a training program to try to uh, alert people to train them to recognize sphere phishing attempts. Because spear phishing continues to be probably the, the most popular technique used by uh, neither nation states or, or non-nation state entities, hacktivists, criminals, ha whatever, to gain access to uh, networks of interest. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the thing you have to do is to educate people to recognize sphere phishing and don't open emails that you don't – you're not sure about the source – and particularly attachments, and because that's how adversaries, whoever they are, uh, will gain access and, and plant malware. 
I was um, an a, aspiring PhD student in the days of the Unabomber, and we were heavily instructed about what to do with packages that came. You know, he was targeting uh, academics and what to, what to do with packages that came into our to our little cubby boxes um, that seemed like they might have wires or bombs in them. But academics, you know, according to the Iranian indictments, um, have been widely targeted. Um, I even was fished um, by a, a Turkish, seemingly a Turkish group um, on on Twitter. I fell for it. Um, you know, what seems so surprising about this time is that the, that the IRA and to some extent the GRU in staging material targeted at civilians, targeted at changing minds, their targets are all of us, everyone yeah. who uses the internet. And exactly. We, and people don't have this kind of acute intel understanding of counterintelligence um, that you do. Well, uh, I, I don't know. There is no silver bullet here. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that the problem is that, um, you know, the technology of today, the internet and all that, all that it the great things it does is inherently insecure. Uh, unfortunately, the founding fathers and mothers didn't consider security when the internet was first invented, <laughs> you know, back in the 70s or whenever it was. And so if, if you have a connection with the internet at all, and this applies to everybody, individuals, corporate entities, government institutions, if you have a connection with the internet, you have inherently a security vulnerability and you have to be aware of it, uh, and it it's such so much a part of our lives that uh, every day that it's hard to keep your mind on on the potential uh, security implications of being on the internet. By the way, this also I think illustrates the huge challenge that the intelligence community has, notably the National Security Agency and the FBI, where you have, as you indicated, millions and millions. Hundreds of millions of people are conducting billions of innocent transactions every day. But all mixed among those innocent transactions are nefarious people conducting nefarious transactions. And so the challenge for the intelligence community and law enforcement community is, you know, trying to pick out the nefarious actors, which are all among the innocent people, mm -hmm. without infringing on anyone's civil liberties and privacy, which is a real mm -hmm. challenge. So, it, you know, in other times, in, in more sort of legible, understandable times, we would have a, probably a statement from the president saying what these particular cyber attacks have done, what, you know, what citizens ought to expect, how they might comport themselves or, or stay somewhat safer on the Internet, um, and what measures are being taken to protect our privacy with the huge with the big tech companies and the intelligence community. We don't have anyone doing that. And that's partly because Trump has set up antagonism between the intelligence community and the and and the White House. Not only that, but intelligence community and and Republicans generally. Um, and so you can't say a word about this uh, without being seen as throwing in with some partisan issue. Well, I thought the recent uh, statements made by the leaders of uh, the national security team in the White House press, uh, press room were very compelling. I mm. thought they were all genuine and sincere, and they, they sounded in, in one way or another rang the bell 
for uh, vigilance on the part of uh, citizens and underlined and reinforced the threat posed by adversaries, most notably Russia. And unfortunately, the president uh, undercut that just within a matter of hours at one of his rallies by saying it was all a hoax. Now, he may have met, you know, the investigation of him as a hoax, but the way it came across, and of course, as usual, people had to come along and clean up the broken China. Uh, and it's good that uh, everybody's each is in their own lanes doing their own thing, whether it's uh, Homeland Security or the FBI or NSA or anybody else. But what's missing here, this isn't just an intergovernmental thing. This is an intersociety thing. And only the commander-in-chief, I think, can galvanize a sense of urgency, not only across the government, but across the public about the threat that the Russians particularly pose and their intent to undermine our fundamental system. I know you, I, I don't want to keep you too long, sir, but, uh, but one last question. So has there ever been a president in your father's time in intelligence, in your own time in intelligence, that has separated himself so decisively from the intelligence community of his own, of the own, his own United States? Um, I mean, even before his inauguration, Trump compared the intelligence community to Nazis. It's as though they are the enemy yeah. and not well, Russia. Uh, yes. It's this whole uh, deep state narrative. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, then President-elect Trump did refer to us as Nazis, and which occasioned my uh, calling him. Uh, I felt I, a sense of duty and obligation to the men and women of the intelligence community to uh, protest uh, as respectfully as I could. Uh, his characterization of the intelligence community as Nazis, which is so far off base and so inappropriate and and so uh, unfair. And I, I tried to uh, convey to him that he was inheriting a national treasure in the form of the intelligence community, which was committed to serving him and every president with the best information possible to help enlighten the very tough decisions he'd have to make. So how does this come out? How do you see it ending? I mean, how, how do you, like, on the extreme, maybe you can give me a worst case, best case. I mean, do we have something, do we have ground war to fear? Do we have nuclear war to fear? Or, or, or just simply something more closer to the destabilization of our institutions, which we've already seen? Well, uh, that, that, of course, is a great question. There, there are ways to empirically measure uh, a nation state's resilience. And, you know, we have all those characteristics uh, in abundance. And our institutions have certainly taken some hits. Uh, the assaults on an independent uh, judiciary and in an independent and free press uh, come to mind as examples. But by and large, overall, I think, uh, you know, we've survived pretty well. It, it, the country has survived previous traumas you know, Civil War, and then a trauma I lived through myself, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And eventually we emerged the better and the stronger for it. And I, I hope that's what happens here. General, I commend you on your book, Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. It's, it's as riveting as Lacare, I, I have to say, <laughs> listeners. Um, thanks also so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. And, and thanks for giving the book a good read.
And that's it for today's show. We always want to know what you think of the show. So be sure to follow and tweet at us at Real Trumpcast. It's the easiest way to find out what we're up to and what we'll be up to in the coming days, weeks, months, years of this administration. Anyway, that's at Real Trumpcast. Our show was produced today by Jason DeLeon with the help of Danielle Hewitt down in Slate's office in D.C. Thank you, Danielle. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.